Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a production from Melbourne's leading independent bookstore, Readings. In today's episode, a recording taken from an in-store conversation with academics and writers Mark Edley and Professor Marko Pavlishin. Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine came as a shock to most of the world. In order to understand why this happened, a growing army of self-declared experts provided explanations often misrepresenting the history of Ukraine and of Russia, and misinterpreting the prehistory of this war and the role of outside forces. Mark Edley, a world authority on the history of the Soviet Union, explains why and how this conflict came about in his book Russia's War Against Ukraine. He considers competing historical claims and arguments with authority and lucidity. The book informs a more nuanced and well-informed debate about this war and its implications. To introduce Edley and Pavlishin, here's Readings Event Staffer and Bookseller, Nelson Matthews. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Readings. On behalf of Readings, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land we're meeting on tonight, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay respects to their elders past and present. We'd like to thank Mark for choosing Readings to launch this very important book tonight. And I imagine that a lot of you here will know of him already, but just in case we've got a few blow-ins and a few people that have come along because they're curious about the book, which often happens from our website, I'll just give a very, very brief bio. Mark is a handsome professor in history at the department and the deputy dean in the Faculty of Arts at the University of Melbourne. He is the author of six books on the history of the Soviet Union, before this one, including Stalinism at War, and the Soviet Union in World War II. He has worked in archives in Russia, Ukraine, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Germany, and the United States. He teaches the history of the Soviet Union, of World War II, and of dictatorship and democracy in the 19th and 20th centuries. Please give him a warm welcome. And if you think that sounded impressive, the person that's going to talk to him, Mark Pavlishin, is professor in Ukrainian studies at Monash University, where he has been in charge of language and culture program, or was in charge of the language and culture program, from 1983 to 2019. His scholarly specialisation is modern and contemporary Ukrainian literature. He's the author of three books and has either written or edited or co-edited numerous other collections. He is a fellow of the Australian Academy of Humanities and an international member of the National Academy of Sciences of Ukraine. Please give Marco a warm welcome. Well, thank you very much for those generous introductions. Mark, congratulations to you on the publication of this fine book, also on the success that it already has had at the Canberra Writers' Festival, where I understand that the crowd was not significantly smaller than than this and perhaps even larger. So, well done. And from the perspective of someone in Ukrainian studies, I can say that this is a very important book, in many ways an innovative book, and I hope that some of the ways in which this book is important will come out in the course of our conversation. 
I thought I'd start by challenging you on the subtitle, The Whole Story. I think since Hayden White, historians have been very conscious of the fact that they make stories, they write narratives by taking things from the limitless chaos of empirical facts and putting them together, selecting them, linking them up as cause and effect, creating emphases, creating focus. So there is never one story and never a whole story. So of course your subtitle, whether it's yours or, or the publisher's, I don't know, is, is a provocation. It's a challenge to us to say, well, of course, if this is the whole story, then what are the not whole stories, the incomplete stories that this account corrects or augments? Can I ask you to respond to that? Yes. I, I could, of course, begin with saying Hayden White was wrong, but I will not go there. So, so one incomplete story is one that's quite popular, particularly among the global left, in fact, uh, which is that this is a conflict between Russia and the West, Russia and NATO, and that Ukraine is just some kind of proxy in, in this. So that's one story that's not whole. And what's missing there, obviously, is the reluctance of NATO to support Ukraine until the war really broke out and Ukraine's agency in its own story, right? So Ukraine is missing from that, that story. Another incomplete story is that it's somehow just a Russian story. So there's the version, the kind of Putinist, the kind of history that the great historian Vladimir Putin would have put out in which Ukraine kind of doesn't exist until the Bolsheviks invent it and it's not really a real thing. And this is all just a, a, a restoration of the real story, which is the story of the Russian Empire, right? So that's also an incomplete and in fact completely misleading story. And finally, there is the kind of what one could call the maybe Russophobic story, which is this is just what Russia does all the time because Russia is deeply, completely imperialist all the time. So if, if Russia doesn't do things like that, then it's sort of behaving out of character. So these are all kind of histories which are floating around, which I think they're not only not whole, but they're completely misleading uh, of, of what actually happened. And then I do the kind of somewhat mad thing and I go back to the Middle Ages, right, in, with this story. But largely to say it doesn't matter too much in a way, the Middle Ages, but my medievalist colleagues will probably not like that line too much. But. So that, that would be my answer, I think. Mm, well, thank you. I suppose at some point uh, we have to ask you what is actually in the book. So why don't you give us a precy uh, of the content? Yeah. In the book is the whole story. I tell essentially a parallel story of Ukraine, of modern Ukraine, and of modern Russia. And I begin quite deliberately with the history of Ukraine, rather than, as most other accounts would do, which go so far back, would begin with Russia and then sort out Ukraine somewhere along the way. So I begin in medieval Rus, which is a conglomerate of polities, which doesn't really have all the trappings of, of what we would now recognize as a state, 
pushed into historical oblivion by the Mongol invasion. And there's several successor states which come out of that. The Ukrainian successor is, there's no statehood, there's no continuity of statehood in the Ukrainian case. Much of what becomes Ukraine is under Polish and Lithuanian rule for very long until Russia later acquires it. But because it's for 300 years really separate from Russia, these lands develop their own history, their own culture, their own language, which then in the 19th century gets taken together, this raw material, and constructed as what we now understand as a Ukrainian nation. So this is a project of 19th century historians and literature people, poets very often, right? Ukraine then emerges for a short historical moment after the breakdown of the Romanov Empire in 1917-18 as an independent state. Very short, but uh, that for me is, that is the important moment where statehood, Ukrainian statehood congeals as a historical reality and is then snuffed out by the more successful successor states to the Romanov Empire that is Poland to the west and what becomes the Soviet Union, Bolshevik Russia to the east. But because Ukrainian national consciousness was so strong, the Bolsheviks decided to integrate Ukraine as a pseudo-independent state. That's how you get the Ukrainian uh, Soviet Socialist Republic. And that is the continuity you get then to, that is the, the entity which becomes an independent state in 1991. So that first chapter, and I will not talk at the same length about the other chapters, but because that story is a little bit less known, I think. I needed to sketch it a little bit. But that's the first chapter which gets you Ukrainian history from the Kievan Rus or the, the medieval Rus to 1991. And then the second chapter does the same with Russia. So it gives you the story of the Russian Empire, its transformation into the Soviet Union, which is also a multinational empire, and then the breakdown in 1991. Then chapter three is Ukraine and its struggle with democracy, but essentially successful struggle for democracy in Ukraine between 1991 and the outbreak of a war. And then we get in the next chapter the same story for Russia, only that they had the struggle for democracy and fails quite spectacularly and goes very strongly in the autocratic direction. And then there's the next chapter is about the immediate decision to go to war, and that focuses very much on the decision maker, which is Vladimir Putin. And then I have a very short chapter, which I shouldn't have written because I have no expertise in it, and that's called The Future, and I'm a historian. So this is about what possible scenarios we might get. And as a historian, I'm probably more reluctant to make very strong statements there, but I develop a, a few scenarios. And I've recently, a few days ago, published with uh, Inside Story, and Peter Brown is here, sort of an update to that, which is kind of how how those scenarios look now, half a year after I finished the book. So you can read that as a, as a companion, maybe. Yeah. One can't help but quote the old joke about historians having trouble predicting the past, let alone the future. That's particularly the case for Soviet and post-Soviet historians. Mark, thanks for that, that outline. I think it makes very clear what one of the, from my perspective, chief virtues of this book is, which is that it treats Ukraine not as the periphery of something else, but rather as a thing in itself. And in that respect, your book is a, a contribution to what I hope is a movement within history writing, but in the humanities more generally, to 
look at the Soviet and post-Soviet space in a decentering way, no longer a, a Moscow-centric way, but a way that gives due weight, due presence to all of the component parts that we used to think of as, you know, the colonies of the, the Soviet, the satellites of, of the Soviet. That's one aspect of the book for which I'm particularly grateful. I'm impressed by, by the structure of the book, which I think came out a little in, in, in what you said, which was the, the kind of the, the symmetry that you've sought to preserve between the Ukrainian narrative and, and the, the Russian narrative. And in the, the, well, the Ukrainian narrative has been a kind of, since certainly since 1991, a faltering, but nevertheless determined trajectory towards democracy. And every time that there's a deviation in the direction of uh, autocratic or authoritarian rule in Ukraine, society rises up and stops that from proceeding. So we have the Orange Revolution, then we have the, the Revolution of Dignity. The Russian narrative, the, you know, the Muscovy Russian Empire, USSR, Russian Federation story, as you tell it, is much more continuous, of course, than the, than the Ukrainian story. It's the story of a, a state that continues in place, whereas in the Ukrainian instance, it's a culture that stays in place, a people that stays in place. Your story of, of, of Russia, of course, is a story in, in which the motifs of expansion, of empire, and of autocracy play key roles to the extent that one thinks of these as almost fundamental, though not essential, but nevertheless fundamental, nevertheless very frequently present components of Russian state identity and not only state identity, but societal identity. And I'd like to ask you next how you balance these two different factors as causes of the Ukraine war. On the one hand, there is the, the weight of history and the experience and the, the readiness of society to accept an imperial model of its development on the part of Russia. And on the other hand, the ambitions and self-perception of a single man, Vladimir Putin. How important are those two in the lead up to the war? Yeah, so, so crudely, one can divide historians into intentionalists and structuralists. So intentionalists focus on the decision makers and their decisions and what they do, what they intend to do. Structuralists uh, focus on large scale structures and processes which somehow push people to do certain things. At the core, my interpretation is probably quite intentionalist because I focus very much on Putin as the decision maker to go to war but it is underwritten by structuralist aspects. So Putin is, you know, Putin is not the only imperialist within Russia, of course. There are at least two contradictions which exploded in this war. And the one you've already mentioned, which is democracy versus autocracy. So from the perspective of Putin's regime, it is a problem to have a functioning East Slav democracy next door because it might encourage your own opposition, and it also shows that this notion that somehow democracy is some sort of Western imperialist construct which is you know, pushed onto and alien to 
East Slav populations is simply wrong, right? So that's the one contradiction which, you know, can lead to war. The other contradiction between imperialism and decolonization. And of course, the decolonial impulse is very strongly embodied in the Ukrainian state, which can, can of course lead to war, but doesn't have to. That the war happened when it happened, there was no real trigger which would have pushed Russia to do this when it did it. It is very clear from if one, one looks at the events, PR, and the sudden changes to the PR line just before the war breaks out, that this came as a surprise to the state-run propaganda apparatus. They didn't know until the last minute that this was happening. It came as a surprise to many of the decision makers closest to, to Putin. They, they clearly didn't, many of them clearly didn't know what was happening. It came as a surprise to the army that this was happening, to the people in the field who were sent in. This was clearly a decision which was quickly made, if prepared. The main reason for the timing is that Putin turned 70 in that year. That's the only reason, there's no other trigger. Nothing happened in Ukraine that year, nothing happened in NATO that year, nothing happened would have forced them in. So we really have to think about Putin and his obsessions with history and his obsessions with his own position in history, his obsession with Russian imperial history and Soviet history as Russian imperial history. So. It only makes sense once we understand Putin's thinking in this and his centrality as a decision maker, I think. But clearly he's acting in you know, a context and once it happened, it started to make sense to a lot of people because you know, this whole imperial thinking was very strongly embedded throughout Russian culture and the Russian public sphere, of course always with pockets of dissidents to that, very, very widespread and it's very clear that there is ongoing well, it's not very, very clear. There's a lot of evidence, let's say, uh, that it continues to be widely supported, although it looks more and more as if this support in Russia is now slowly dying down. On a, on a different note, Mark, there's keep finding different admirable things about your book. And one of them is that it takes issue uh, with some value judgments and opinions that have a certain currency in the West, which are questionable and which people like, like myself and, and like many of those whom I recognize in the audience find disturbing. And that is the notion, a movement within, within uh, foreign policy studies, realism, views as a, a kind of a determinist, an essentialist vision of what Russia is. Russia is a great power. Uh, as a great power, it's entitled to certain prerogatives, in particular to determine foreign policy orientation of its neighbours and perhaps even to limit the sovereignty of its neighbours. And if it is perceived that some encroachments are being made upon these prerogatives, then uh, it's understandable and perhaps even justified that Russia should react. And so... You know, the, the war is Russia's understandable reaction to provocations and encroachments by the West as represented by NATO and the European Union. Maybe you'd like to say a few words about how you dispute this position. 
Yeah, can I keep it to a few words is the question. I, I might give you a whole lecture on this topic. I mean, th there's several things which are wrong with that. One is the term realism, because it's not realistic to say that great powers have you know, an inherent right to a sphere of influence and the people who live next to them have no right to fight against that. It's equally realistic for Ukraine to try to resist that encroachment. So it's a PR term. Yeah. These colleagues in international relations, they call themselves realists because then they can say to everybody who disagrees with them, you're not a realist, you're some sort of idealist, and so we don't have to deal with you. So there's a normative aspect to that. There's, there's an inbuilt idea that larger powers have rights, others don't, and resistance to those prerogatives is kind of either futile or not, not, not correct. It's also fundamentally ahistorical because it's not that Russia is a great power all the time. Russia is a great power in some moments. In 1914, in 1814, it was a great power, you know? major part of defeating Napoleon. In 1914, it was probably still a great power, although with all sorts of problems. In 1918, when the whole thing collapsed and there were something like 30 different governments claiming bits and pieces of territory, it was not a great power. Uh, in 1925, when they had nearly no industry, despite the rebuilding after the Civil War, it was not a great power. In 1945, great power again. In 1991, probably not. Bankrupt, essentially highly dependent on support from the West. And today, also not a great power. I, did, I was prepared for this question and I brought notes with the statistics, but I will not, I will not bore you with the statistics. But if you go through any indicator, size of country is the one where it really comes up because biggest country in the world, right? But there's other big countries. If it comes to size of population, right? Countries like Bangladesh or Brazil, nobody treats them as great powers, but they have huge populations. Size of military, Vietnam has an army twice, three times as Russia. So you can go through all the economy, GDP, Australia is in the same league as Russia in GDP, uh, let alone GDP per capita, where we are in a totally different league. So Barack Obama, during his presidency, at one point said that this was not a, a great power, it was a regional power. Uh, this was criticized as undiplomatic, and it probably was undiplomatic, but it was factually correct. It's a regional power. And we see that also in its fight against a much smaller also economically struggling nation, which in the initial phases of the war defended itself not with NATO weaponry, but with their own Soviet-era largely tanks and artillery. It's simply not a great power today. So it, it's a circular argument to say Russia always was, always will be a great power, therefore we give it great power status. Okay, I rest my case. <laughs> with you this. all the way on that one, Mark. <laughs> Let's switch the focus of attention to the readership of, of your book, uh, Mark. Uh, the, the book is extremely readable. It's, it's very well and gracefully written, occasionally quite informally written, reads like a, like a fantastic story. How important, Mark, is it for historians, but you know, humanities scholars uh, more generally, who sometimes write in less than transparent ways, to write in a way that is accessible to an intelligent audience which may not be 
expert in the field which may not have a lot of previous knowledge uh, about the subject matter but is interested uh, and wants to understand uh, a situation of tremendous urgency like the one that we confront in the Ukrainian war. How important is that kind of approach? Well, well, it seems central to me. I mean, the, the kind of writing things in obscure specialist language for a readership of 10 is important because, you know, that's how you get grants and, 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 and so on. But that's not the most impactful thing historians can do. The most impactful things historians can do is teach undergraduate students in large numbers and do it well uh, and write for larger audiences, talk about what they can bring to the understanding of, of where we are. To me, that is very important. I, I've written very specialized research things in my career as well. And it's particularly important in moments when, you know, there is really new information coming out. So, so Soviet history was one of these really exciting fields where suddenly new archives were there and one could do stuff one couldn't do before. That was a moment to write, you know, very specialized monographs for other historians. Uh, but I think that moment has passed, at least as far as I'm concerned. There are still things to find in, in Soviet archives, particularly in the Baltic states and Ukraine, whether or not many of us will ever be able to go back to Russia, whether I should be going back to Russia after that book, I don't know. But that big moment where it was really important to just get the story straight in the first instance and write things for other specialists, to me, has passed, I think. That's great. So the book is a great read, ladies and gentlemen. Please please buy it and, and get it signed by, by the author tonight. Shall we show our appreciation in the customary manner? Thank you. Thanks for coming. And thank you, Marco. Russia's war against Ukraine is available from all reading stores and from our website, where you'll find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Calligan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. Thank you for listening. <laughs>